Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Out College Podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I got a super interesting conversation to share with you. I just spoke to a guy named Bill Von Hippel. So Bill, I first heard of him on the Joe Rogan Experience Podcast. He was on there a couple months ago uh, on the same day that his brand new book, The Social Leap, came out. The book is fascinating. It's relevant. I think everyone should read it. Everyone should learn more about this. What Bill does is he is an evolutionary psychologist at the University of Queensland in Australia. And this topic is so fascinating to me about how we evolved to be where we're at today and how we can harness our biology to handle the world that we live in now. It's It was an awesome conversation. I got to ask a lot of questions that I'm genuinely curious about and have thought about a lot. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Bill Von Hippel. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Uh, totally my pleasure. Awesome. So maybe for the, uh, for the listeners out there who aren't familiar with your work yet, uh, could you tell them a little bit about your background and, and what you're up to right now? Sure. So I'm a social psychologist, and uh, my background is trying to understand just what people are like in their everyday lives, you know, how they interact with each other. And so for maybe the first 20 years of my career, I just did sort of standard social psychological research, but I became increasingly interested in trying to understand how we are today as a function of where we used to be, how we got here. And so I became increasingly interested in evolution and biology, anthropology, archaeology. And so just over time, maybe the last dozen years or so, I've been focusing much more on those literatures in an effort to see if I can get a better understanding of how we are today by gaining a sense of where we came from. Got it. Okay. And, and I imagine a lot of that has made its way into your, your new book just came out, The Social Leap. Yes. Yes. So the, yeah, that's exactly right. So The Social Leap is really the story of the last six million years of our evolution. And it's an effort to describe that past in order to understand that the, the way we are now a bit better. So the first, I'd say third of the book is going through that our deep past, you know, the millions of years ago. And then it, then we talk about farming and agriculture and how that changed a lot. And then really the latter two thirds of the book is about how we are today. How can we use our understanding of the past to explain things like leadership, innovation, uh, sociality, tribalism, happiness, all the kinds of things that matter to us in our everyday lives. Fantastic. I'd love to, you know, dive into each part of that there. So let's, let's go all the way to the beginning. I mean, I'm curious, where did you first get the interest in this subject at all? Like when, when did this sort of, uh, what sparked the interest for you in, in social psychology? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wanted to be a physicist and then I wanted to be a lawyer and then I was taking some college classes and all the above and, and I realized they weren't for me. And uh, I happened to have some really lovely classes in psychology and I thought, wow, this is great because what I always thought psychology was was trying to understand people's problems. And although I'm you know, perfectly interested in people's problems, I'm not... I'm not really good at helping them. I'm not a super empathetic guy. Uh, you know, that's not really my strength. 
And so I never really thought about psychology because I thought that's what it was. And then I discovered there's this branch of psychology that's just really studying how everyday people go about their lives doing their thing. How do you persuade other people? When do you rely on stereotypes? How do you make decisions? You know, just standard everyday human stuff. And I'm super interested in standard everyday human stuff. And so um, I decided, boy, that's for me. That's what I want to do. And then um, I went to I, I went off to get my PhD in psychology at the University of Michigan. And when I got there, I met uh, David Buss, who's a professor. He's now at the University of Texas. He had just arrived at the University of Michigan at the same time I did, although he had come, he had been a professor already at Harvard. And so he'd come in as a new professor, switching over to us, and I was a brand new grad student. And he told me about this sort of developing field of evolutionary psychology. And I thought, wow, that sounds super exciting, but I will never get a job if I do that. People are not going to like that. And so better do the standard stuff I had in mind. And when the time comes, I can turn back to this. And so I kept always having that in the back of my mind. Uh, my younger brother is an evolutionary biologist, and he and I would chat about that a lot. And then I had the opportunity to meet Robert Trivers, who's an evolutionary biologist who studies really psychological phenomena. And so that's when I started moving to this current area. And that was then massively benefited by moving here to the University of Queensland, where my colleague Thomas Sudendorf and a bunch of us do evolutionary psychology work together, and they're expert in ancient hominin evolution and stuff. So I got a chance to learn about that as well. That's incredible. I, I love that. So, uh, yeah, because it, it seems like uh, evolutionary psychology is a developing field. It's something that, you know, I've, I think it's, it's accelerating. So when, when you first got into it, uh, you mentioned that it sort of wasn't a good career move. Yeah. So, so you took a yeah. risk to, to dive into it? Well, I didn't take the risk. That's just it. So I, I thought if I start this out in the beginning of my career, no one will ever hire me. So let me just do standard social psychology. I spent about 10 years working on stereotyping and prejudice. That was an interest of mine. Straight up, you know, how your mind works stuff. And then later, once I'm promoted, once I'm a professor and, and I don't rely on the kindness of strangers to to survive in my career, I thought that would be a good time to turn my attention to evolutionary stuff. So no, I did not take that risk at all. In fact, when, when I would go to meetings of evolutionary psychologists early in my career, you've never seen a larger group of smarter people with worse jobs in your whole life. Because it's just, I think it was just regarded as politically incorrect. In fact, um, David Buss and I recently wrote a couple articles trying to explore why social psychologists tend not to be um, interested in evolutionary psychology, why they tend not to like it. And I think that disinterest in, and not liking it is by and large misguided. It's, it's people not liking it for a caricature of it. They, they don't, they, their negative attitudes aren't based on what it really is, it's based on what they think it is. But nonetheless, those attitudes are still common. And so I think it was, in my own particular case, prudent to get employed before I started doing this work. I love that. I love that. I love the idea of like a grand scheme to sort of work your way into it over time. How long did that take to, to sort of make that? 20 years. 20 yeah, 20 years to bring it around. But here's the thing. It sounds like a waste of time, but it wasn't. Because what enabled me to do the kind of work I'm doing is by thoroughly immersing myself in mainstream social psychology so I could understand how we interact with each other socially. And once I had that understanding, now I could start going back to our past to try to build a picture. And so I think if I had dived into evolutionary material from the front end, I wouldn't have had that thorough understanding of the social literature that would um, allow me to build the kind of picture I was able to build and, and write the book that I wrote. I think that's incredible though. It's, it's a winning strategy. You know, you looked at what you had, you know, there in front of you and you decided to take the path that would actually get you what you wanted in the end. So. Well, it's either a winning, either a winning strategy or I'm a complete chicken, but one way or another. 
<laughs> I think it's awesome. So, um, and you mentioned that there's sort of, because I've heard there's like sort of a bias against evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology. Maybe there's a higher bar for what you need to be able to prove to say that this, you know, this led to this. Uh, what, what is that stigma? What's the stigma that people believe and what is it that you understand about um, social psychology that makes it different? Yeah, so the, the thing is that um, a lot of people look at evolutionary psychology, evolutionary anthropology, any of these social science disciplines where we try to understand our past, they look at it as telling just so stories, kind of like Rudyard Kipling stories, how the leopard got its spots. And they're, they're, they're entertaining, but they're assuredly in his case untrue, they're just for fun. And, and the argument is, well, in our case, they're also silliness and nonsense because we can't know what our past was like. But of, of course, although we can't know, and of course, the farther we go back in time, the more we rely on conjecture, that doesn't mean that we can't try. And in fact, you know, paleoanthropology and the fields of archaeology are all about using these tiny little pieces of information to go back into our past and try to figure out what things were really like. And, and those people have done amazing work. I mean, the, the biology, the anthropology, the archaeology all comes together and tells a coherent story. Now, admittedly, there's gaps in the story, many of them, and those gaps require a fair bit of inference to fill in. And sometimes what it tells you only gives you general parameters. So, for example, we can use lice DNA, you know, the DNA and the lice that live on our bodies to figure out when we invented clothing. And that, that when we do that, it tells us, well, we invented clothing at least 70,000 years ago, but it could well have been a lot much longer ago than that. It's just that lice didn't evolve to take advantage of our clothing until about 70,000 years ago. So sometimes the answers are kind of vague, but in, in actuality, they often make good sense and they line up with each other. So we now know, for example, that um, human beings arrived, homo sapiens arrived in Australia at least 65,000 years ago. Well, all right, that's kind of a nice timeline for inventing clothing at least 70,000 years ago, because in the warm climate of Africa, you got less use for clothing. But as you start to leave, which human beings were doing at, at, in, in mass by 70,000 years ago and sporadically 80,000 and more years ago, you start to think, well, clothes would come in handy. So it's nice when the picture tells a consistent and coherent story across these different ways of looking at it. I think that's so fascinating to take all the different pieces from the different fields and the different disciplines. It's almost like an algebra equation. It's like we have a few variables and we have our outcome as we are today. Um, so how can we make this story make sense? Um, I find that just, that's super fascinating there. So well, yeah. with that in mind, I mean, like what's, uh, what's the process of, you know, do you, is it sort of like a, a guess and check kind of mechanism or is it like, you know, you take the clues as you get them and how often do new clues arise to, you know, I can we're, imagine. We're in a really lucky world. We're in a really great time now because new clues are coming up constantly. People are making tons of discoveries um, in the archeological field out of Africa um, and out of Asia and everywhere else because our Homo erectus ancestors left Africa and that's where Neanderthals come from, right? They're our cousins who, the ones who evolved outside of Africa and we're the ones who evolved inside of Africa. So okay. there's tons of puzzles and clues coming in from everywhere. And I think for me, the, the best example of how we solve this particular thing is when we use those clues that other fields give us, and then we use them to make new predictions about how we are. Because if all we end up with is, oh, well, that explains something we already know, then it could well be that it's our own human biases to take that piece of evidence and kind of channel it down to what we already know to be true. 
-hmm. But if, it, if in fact we can say, all right, well, if all those things are true, then it should follow that this is also true. And let's see if we can gather data on that new this. And when that works, then we have a lot more confidence that we're onto something important because not only did it help us explain how we are today, but it took us to new knowledge about how we are today that we didn't have previously. And so that's always my goal. In my particular case, I'm trying to understand social intelligence. How is it that we got to be so socially clever? What are the skills that underlie it? Um, what, you know, what can we do to make ourselves better at it, et cetera? And so that happens to be a problem that I'm working on, but to the degree that understanding our past gives me purchase on that problem, then I feel like I've, I've probably found something that's true. If it, if it takes me in a direction that leads to a prediction that I, I can't find any evidence for, well then maybe I was just wasting my time. It was an idea that could have been true, it just happened not to have been. Got it, got it. So we're undoubtedly social creatures, right? Are, are we, uh, would you say humans rank among more social or less social than, uh, I mean, I guess it's hard to compare to all living things, but maybe other primates or other mammals. Now that's a great question, actually. We, we are um, often referred to as hypersocial, that we, our sociality is a really critical part of our psychology. And so it's, so it's such a critical part that it often seems weird to us that any animal would ever choose to live alone. So for example, orangutans, um, especially adult males, spend a huge chunk of their life alone. And our immediate reaction is, God, that sounds awful. That sounds so lonely. But really what that's doing is revealing our psychology. There's nothing inherently lonely about being alone. It's just that if you're a species that didn't survive when you were alone, then you were a species that found it aversive to be alone. And, and you can see our hypersociality, our increased sociality over our great ape cousins, most notably if you look at our eyes. If you look at the eyes of the fellow, our fellow great apes, around the middle of them is all brown. And so what's happening is that our chimpanzee and gorilla and orangutan cousins are disguising the direction of their attention. They don't want other members of the group to know what's caught their mind because then the other members of the group are likely to compete with them to try to get it first. But we advertise that. If I look over there, you can see it immediately. Even if I try to head fake you and you know, move my head one way and do my eye, look with a different direction with my eyes, you know it. And so what that's telling you is that I'm giving you a true advertisement of my attention and my, where my mind is focused which tells you that in all probability, I want you to know where I'm looking because you'll probably help me achieve my goals. If I've seen uh, an enemy or if I've seen a friend or if I've seen something to eat, in all probability by letting you know what I've seen, you'll help me achieve that goal. And that speaks to our fundamental cooperative nature and the fundamental sociality that's woven into the fabric of our being. So I think that's really interesting. The part that I that struggle with with that idea is that, you know, like the, uh, select the selectiveness of a gene where maybe you have whiter eyes or maybe you're more like, how does that first bud into a characteristic where people are more social? Like if, if we all had dark eyes, we're all hiding the direction we're looking and uh, how does the first instance of that occur where maybe someone has whiter eyes or something like what? what yeah, that's a great, situation? that's a great question. And so the notion that there's two ways you can get there. One is by random drift that happens to lead to a uh, previously recessive trait now becomes um, more common or something like that. And so it's more likely to manifest itself or you can have a mutation. But in either case, you've got, let's say that, that here we are, we're ancestral humans and I evolved to have whites in my eyes and nobody else has. Them. But we've already evolved to be very social. We've already evolved to be super cooperative. 
Well, now the whites to my eyes give me a huge advantage because I look over there and everybody in my group goes, oh, Bill's looking over there. Let's go help him get that thing. And now Bill achieves more. And so Bill has more kids and his tendency to have whites to your eyes passes on. In contrast, if I'm a chimp and I evolve whites to my eyes and I look over there and everybody rushes to get the food first and I lose out, well, Bill has fewer kids and the tendency to have whites to your eyes disappears. And so these things have to go in lockstep with each other. They evolve at a time that's useful for them or they tend to disappear. And so when they randomly emerge, if it gives you an advantage, like for example, the ability to process um, lactase or lactose when you're an adult with a lactase gene, well, that gave our ancestors an advantage and then it just spread through the population. Because now they have access to cattle or goats or whatever exact milk they're drinking and that gene actually benefits them to continue to produce lactase later in life. Previously, it was either a neutral or maybe even a waste of energy to produce that enzyme. And so people just didn't have it. And so the key thing is that these things need to come along at the right time. Um, one of my favorite examples is a very recent study that suggests that the, our brain expansion came about by this NOTCH2NL gene. And what that gene does is it causes our brains to remain as stem cells for longer, our neurons. And so they, they duplicate for a longer period of time before they dedicate themselves to becoming neurons, meaning we have more of them in our brain. Well, that appears to have first emerged in our line about 12 to 15 million years ago, but it was in an inactive version of itself. Now that inactive version of itself doesn't appear to become active till about three, three and a half million years ago. Why did it happen then? Well, it probably happened many times, but then why build such a big brain when there's no advantage from it? It's using up a lot of calories, you're not getting more calories in return, so it's disadvantageous to have a bigger brain. But three, three and a half million years ago, now australopithecines are starting to work together in their mutual defense in the savannah, and all sorts of opportunities can come together out of the sociality if you're a bit smarter. And so these things tend to evolve probably repeatedly. They mostly tend to disappear because they're not helpful, but when the trade happens to come along at the right time in the right place, boom, then you're golden and off it goes. So it's... So we usually have these things sort of happening already evolutionary. It's just when the circumstances arrive that they're beneficial to us that we start to actually capitalize on or that starts to make its way into the entire population. Yeah, that's a super common example. We've got lots of these traits in us that are either recessive and so super rare or the mutations that are an easy step to get there. And they just, we don't take that step because the, the, the advantages aren't there from doing so. Or it's, it's either neutral, in which case you kind of randomly take it or you don't, or it's actually detrimental, in which case those who take that step end up disappearing. But every once in a while, rarely, but every once in a while, that step is a really positive one because now it happens at the perfect time in the perfect place. And then it literally sweeps the population. And you can see very rapidly that gene goes from being super rare to being super common because whoever has it has a really big advantage over everybody else. Got it. So this might be a little bit of a wild question, but do you think there are genes that maybe we have now that uh, haven't been effective for our ancestors, but may be effective for, you know, people moving forward? In our yeah, I think there's a lot of those. Yeah, I think there's a lot of those genes. And so, for example, um, there's a, a lovely book that came out recently called The 10,000 Year Explosion. And in that book, um, the authors argue that evolution has actually sped up over the last 10,000 years. It hasn't slowed down. And that argument was based on a paper that came out in Proceedings of Natural, National Academy of Sciences, where they actually demonstrated that scientifically, that this, the pace of evolution is picking up. Now, what that tells you is that modern life has changed a lot. Now, admittedly, modern 10,000 years ago is not, or 5,000 years ago is not modern compared to today. But it's changed a lot, and so it's 
it's given us new advantages and new disadvantages. And I guess the, the trait that I would put a finger on just randomly to choose one would be things like ADHD. So here you are, you're not good at sitting there and listening to people who are boring you. You're, you're not good at paying attention when things don't interest you. And you've got a lot of energy, you wanna go do things. Well, for our entire history of our, of our species, that would have been a good thing, right? Nobody sits around and listens to things that aren't interesting, they just move on. Nobody's forcing you to do that. There's no benefit from doing that. But suddenly we live in a world where you can succeed a lot more readily if you can literally sit there, hold still, and force yourself to listen to something that doesn't interest you at all. And so what, what was previously totally a nothing, maybe even a benefit, is now a big negative and we have to treat it medically and it's a major problem because people can't find the current modern road to success if they happen to have that suite of traits. And I can imagine that applies to a lot of different traits, and, and, you know, especially as you know, things accelerate even over the past, you know, like 200 years, things have accelerated so much. The world is so much different now, but we still have this, you know, 6 million year old brain or whatever. Yeah, that's right. And so the, the thing is we are still evolving. Culture moves way faster than genes do. So we, we just change and adapt psychologically, even if we're not changing biologically, but eventually biology changes as well. And so in all probability, the pressures that are on us today are gonna manifest themselves and changes in the way we are a thousand, 10,000, a million years from now. It's super hard to predict what that will look like. Because remember, in the end, reproduction is the currency of evolution. So whoever has the most kids who in turn go on to have the most kids, that's the traits that are gonna be dominant in our species down the road someday. And we're, we're now in a world where reproduction is completely separate from sexual activity, basically. And so it used to be the, that whatever made you successful, so to speak, sexually, made you successful reproductively, but that's not true anymore. And so again, that completely changes the evolutionary pressures on our species and the, and the way we're likely to look in the future. So are you, you know, given all the technological state of the world right now and how complex it is and, you know, sort of difficult to grapple with as it is with our old uh, biology, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about our ability to sort of adapt to these things and understand our, our shortcomings? So I'm actually super optimistic. And, and the reason I'm optimistic is that not so much relying on the biology, but relying on the psychology and our capacity to restructure society. So I'm not sure if you've seen Pinker, Stephen Pinker's new book, um, The uh, Enlightenment Now. Enlightenment Now, yeah. yeah. It's a lovely book that just goes through all the different ways that the world is better than it used to be. It's a follow-on from his earlier book, on The Better Angels of Our Nature, which also is a story about how much the world has gotten better. And when you look at that and you see how much better the world is becoming, you realize that what we've, what we've gotten really good at is what we understand our human frailties, we understand the kinds of situations that lead us to misbehave, and so we redesign situations so that we don't misbehave as much. So the world has gotten so much safer, not because the human beings who exist today are inherently nicer than the human beings that existed 50 or 100 years ago. Genetically, we haven't gotten nicer in 100 years, but we have set up a situation so that it rewards niceness more than it rewards nastiness. And it used to be that nastiness was more heavily rewarded than it is today. And so naturally that side of our human nature came out. Now we do know that over evolutionary time, we have domesticated ourselves as well. Human beings are really, really good at, at leveling the hierarchy. And so in hunter-gatherer societies, if, if anyone's throwing their weight around, if they're either a psychopathic nut job or if they're just mean and aggressive and want to always be on the top of the heap, 
Well, every human goes to sleep sometime, right? And so our, our, our hunt-together ancestors were really good at solving that problem. And that probably played a big role in domesticating our species in the first place. The really nasty ones among us kept getting killed by the rest of them who couldn't stand them anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so we have, we, we've sort of played a role in our own evolution in that regard. But now we're at a point where we don't really, well, we do incarcerate people who behave like that. But more importantly than that, we just change the rules of society so that almost everybody recognizes, well, my bread isn't buttered by misbehaving in these ways. I, I might as well go to school or, or be an athlete or do whatever I can to make a go of it in a non-aggressive and more cooperative manner. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. So uh, when it comes to sort of like adapting our, our uh, bodies, the way they were designed and evolved over time to the modern world, do you see any push in like uh, in you know, elementary education, lower level education to give kids the insight into how to, you know, sort of handle their, their bodies, you know, that we've inherited? Yeah. Well, look, it's a good question, but it's one that we don't fully really understand what to do about it yet. And I think the clearest example of that is this obesity epidemic. So if you look at at obesity in the United States, for example, in the 1980s, um, the states that had the highest obesity levels were hovering around 5 to 10%, occasionally a little bit over 10%. Most states didn't even collect statistics on it because obesity wasn't, it was so much a non-problem that they didn't even keep track of it. Now... The thinnest states in America have obesity levels that are way higher than the heaviest states had in the 1980s. Now, nothing about our biology has changed in that 40 years, but everything about the world that we live in has obviously changed. So something about our diets have taken, have caused people to become obese who wouldn't become obese before. Now, part of what's so interesting about that is that when you look at the behavioral genetics of obesity, it's about 70% heritable. So how could something that's 70% genetic go from a world go in the U.S. or less than 40 years ago, 30 so, where no one's obese, to now a world where, you know, 30, 40% of the people are overweight? Well, how could that be when it's also so highly heritable? Well, what that's telling us is that what's actually hired, highly heritable is not being obese, but being sensitive to some aspects of the food in our environment or the way we exercise such that when you're now in that new environment, you're highly likely to become obese. Whereas when you were in a previous environment, you wouldn't have become obese. So it's a really good example of how genes and environment can interact. And something that's highly genetic is at the same time highly environmental. Um, I personally am very persuaded by Steve Simpson's work, who argues that the real problem with obesity is that our diets have become too low in protein and that we evolved to seek out protein. And so when our diet becomes low in protein, we overeat carbohydrates and, other, and fats in order to get enough protein in our diet. And so it's, what Simpson's work shows very convincingly, he's got a lovely book called The Nature of Nutrition. And in that book, he outlines how you raise the protein rate in your diet and people naturally just consume less. Now that's not likely to be the whole story, but that's an example of a big part of the story. And it's an example of something that might be highly heritable. So heavier people might on average have a greater sensitivity to protein in their diet. And again, that would also fit with the fact that we see big differences in obesity by social class, because of course, protein is more expensive than carbohydrates. And so if you're poorer, then you're going to eat a higher carb diet. And if you have this proclivity to be obese, you're going to, it's going to drive you to eat more and more to seek out the proteins that you need. And so it's a, it's a good example of how in all probability, our environments changed around us in a way that we now have to figure out okay, well, once we understand what's actually going on, we can beat this obesity epidemic. But in the meantime, I think we've gone about it entirely the wrong way. 
you look at the food pyramid that up till very recently was pushing carbohydrates, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's, you know, in, when the food pyramid came out, obesity was almost a non-problem. But they were, they were going, oh, this is terrible. Look, obesity rates have risen to 15%. Well, they changed that food pyramid and they more than double obesity rates. Wow. Wow, that's insane. So the science isn't really, so, the, so basically the science isn't really settled yet, so we don't know exactly what to do about everything. I feel like with obesity, at least, you know, people are becoming more health conscious than ever, you know, more people go to the gym and exercise and, you know, they do, because I imagine our ancestors are probably running around all day. Yeah. You know, you got to kind of match that level of energy. But then on the flip side, there's all these things psychologically that we haven't even begun to address at any level, like the biases that, that humans have and, and you know, sort of understanding how that plays into, uh, like, I'm fascinated in how that plays into like politics and policy and, and the way people think about ideas and agree on truths. And, uh, and yeah. how it's sort of like we're drifting, you know, we haven't begun to be able to dissect or take apart like why we think the way that we do. No, you're absolutely right. And so the problem is that because the science doesn't fully agree yet, and the scientists disagree about exactly what we ought to be doing about this issue, well, then everybody who's on one side of that equation or another can use the science that they know to argue in their own favor. So food companies that can sell more products by, for example, mimicking the taste of protein, but not providing them that potato chips are a good example of that. That makes you capable of eating a whole bag of potato chips, which you couldn't do if that was like a little bag of steaklets, right? You know, Mm -hmm. you eat that much hamburger or chicken and you just feel totally full but you could eat a bag of potato chips or a box of frosted flakes because they don't provide the kinds of things that make you feel full. Now, not every scientist agrees that that's the understanding of this. And so as long as that's the case, it's so much easier to argue from your own ideology. That's human nature to agree with the data that are consistent with our worldview and to be very dismissive of the data that aren't. And so it allows both the big food companies that benefit by the current situation. And of course, the individuals themselves who say, well, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be eating this, but I'll only have a little bit while I watch this next TV show or something like that, because it's a lot easier to sit in front of the television with a bag of potato chips than it is to go for a run or lift weights or do those other kinds of things. And, you know, the, the way we make a living in our modern world is typically by sitting on our rear ends all day. And even though that's not physically tiring, it is tiring. And so when you come home at the end of the day, it is hard to go to the gym. It is hard to do those things. So we've unfortunately set up our environment in a way that, doesn't take advantage of our past strengths, but makes us susceptible to all those past weaknesses. You know, every one of our ancestors sought out sugar, fat, and salt at every opportunity they could get because those things were scarce. Well, that great goal, that highly evolved goal is now a huge problem because those things aren't scarce at all. They're way overabundant. So have you seen any, um, have you seen anybody like actively trying to address that, that problem? Like, you know, addressing sort of our, our evolutionary shortcomings? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So the thing is that the, the key to doing this is to take an evolutionary approach to the problem in the first place, right? And to say, okay, well, what are, what are the nature of our shortcomings and, and how do they arise out of our evolved psychology? And so therefore, how can we go after them from that same perspective? In that regard, I highly recommend Randy Nessie's work. He's, he's, a Darwinian, he's in Darwinian medicine. He's one of the inventors of the field. And he had a book that just came out only a few days ago called um, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, if I remember the title right. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but Nessie's brilliant, and so i got to believe it's going to be a great book. And he's yeah. trying to do exactly what you're asking. He's trying to say, well, understanding our evolved nature, how is it that we can take advantage of that fact 
and use what we understand about our evolved past in order to say, well, what should we be trying to fix and what should we not be trying to fix? What are symptoms of really a different problem altogether? So the very simple example is fever. Well, it feels really unpleasant when your body brings its temperature up, but we evolved to do that in order to fight infection. So what that means is that we shouldn't always be treating a fever. Sometimes, yeah, go ahead and treat a fever because it's unpleasant. You're not gaining anything from it. But sometimes you should actually work your way through the fever rather than trying to reduce it because that's your body doing its best to fight the underlying infection. And so treating a fever is treating a symptom but not treating the underlying problem. And Nessie's done a great job of demonstrating this in a whole wide variety of domains um, in his role as both a Darwinian biologist but also a, a doctor. And, and this book is really trying to go after evolution and psychiatry. Because in some ways, we've, at least for the moment, beat most of the big physical problems that we have that where, where we suffer you know, biologically, but we haven't done as good of a job of beating the mental problems that we have. And presumably, a lot of those problems, you know, mental health problems are super common, and presumably a lot of them are coming about by this evolutionary mismatch. You know, you look out your window and I don't see any trees. And... And, and we didn't evolve in environments like this. And so there's lots of mismatches between the way we live our life today and the way that we used to. And those mismatches can lead to anxiety and unhappiness and all sorts of other problems. Yeah. And I mean, besides just the environment that we live in, I, I think it's, I, I'm sort of alarmed by the, you know, the sort of mental health crisis going on where it's sort of obvious that like the social connections that we used to have are quickly disappearing like even you know a hundred years ago I, I could imagine society was a lot more focused on like family units large family groups and those social bonds that held everybody together and now it's like every person for themselves and it's kind of yeah and unfortunately you, unfortunately you're right and this isn't this is interesting it's an unintended consequence of wealth and so if you're well-to-do middle class or above in america you don't need your neighbors you know, your lawn needs to be mowed, you're a busy person, you call somebody up and they come mow it. You never even necessarily talk to the person. They show up and they do the job. And so what happens when you're middle class or above in the United States is that you actually don't even necessarily know the people who live on either side of you anymore. You don't necessarily even know the people who work in your building anymore because you only need your small division. And so the interdependencies that we used to need to have because we couldn't survive without them are no longer necessary and so we don't have a tendency to just engage in them anyway. Interestingly, if you look at poorer Americans, they need those connections. They're much more interdependent on their neighbors because if, if they get sick today, they can't afford daycare for their kids or whatever the case might be in order to meet their other obligations and so they depend on each other a lot more. They're much more likely to babysit each other's kids. They're much more likely to help each other out around the house because they can't afford to solve those problems monetarily. They can't just buy them off. And because they can't buy them off, they're forced to be more social and that actually leads them to be happier. It leads them to a greater sense of social connection. And so, yes, it is the case that as you get richer, you get happier. The effect is really small. And a big part of the reason that effect is so small is that you start to pay other costs. And one of those other costs typically is decreased sociality, decreased social connection, exactly as you're describing. Yeah, that's crazy. That's just, that's the idea that, you know, like uh, the rich person that's, that's like suicidal versus the poor people that are just totally happy. Yeah, wow. yeah exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense because you think, oh, but all I want to do is be rich. And what you don't realize is, you know, everything, evolution gives with one hand, but it takes with another. And the same holds for the places where we sit in society. 
And so, you know, people who win the lottery, they love all the fancy stuff that they get to buy, but they lose their connection with their friends for a whole host of reasons. And so they typically don't end up any happier, even though they're suddenly it solves all the monetary problems they ever had, but it introduces an entire new set of problems that they never had before. And I, I mean, that that's part of the reason why I, I think that your work is so important is because it's giving people insight into this, you know, the, the blueprint that we're, we've been developed with and then takes a look at how we need to adapt our understanding of that, of our bodies today into the world that we're living in because nobody has a roadmap for it. It doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. And, and the key thing about that roadmap is that we do know there's this big mismatch. And so we want to think always, well, where, did, where were we in the past? What made us happy then? And how can I harness that knowledge for how I want to be happy today? And then secondarily, the great thing about being a person is there's so many different ways to be a success. You know, we don't have just one route to success for our species. We've got a million routes to success. And what that also means is that there's a million routes to happiness. And so it's not the case that, that there's one best way for everybody. There's generally good ways to do it and generally poor ways to do it. But also you need some kind of self-insight and say, all right, that's not really working for me. That seemed reasonable, but it, that's not my personality. Let me try another strategy because we can very often make ourselves miserable just by the poor choices that we make thinking, well, everybody else I know seems to want this in life. I got into law school. I guess I should go, right? All my friends are jealous. They want to go to law school. But of course, that doesn't mean that you're going to enjoy it in the slightest. And so you also need, it's hard because knowing yourself is surprisingly one of the most difficult things to do. But um, but there are ways to get there. And, and when you do get there, the key is to say, well, well, sociality always matters. It'll be always be important to have friends and family. But what else should I be doing with my time and my interest to make myself feel, myself feel happy and fulfilled? And unfortunately, that is a pretty difficult question, especially when we have so many options. You know, all we used to do is sit around the campfire and BS at the end of the day. And pretty yeah. much that makes everybody happy. But now we've got a million options. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know if you've seen any solutions to this problem, at all in your, in your research or anything, but I feel like the pendulum's got to swing back the other way eventually. And, and, you know, we will start to recognize these, uh, you know, what we're missing out on or what our biology needs to, to, you know, feel fulfilled or whatever. Have, have you come across any sort of, are there, are there, uh, human biology understanding rehab groups or anything like that? <laughs> there, there are, there are good, that's a good question. There are good ways of trying to say, well, what do we know about the data that help us solve this problem? And how can we undo things in the modern world that are actually upsetting to us? And so there's some really lovely work coming out of, if I remember, it's um, Liz Dunn's lab at UBC, but if I'm misremembering it, um, I, people can email me or, or Google it and find it. And what they show is that if you, if you go to dinner, they do these really clever studies where they have you at dinner, they say, okay, well, we're going to be buzzing you on your phone with some questions while you're at dinner with your friends, so please keep your phone on the table. And that way we can contact you. Or they say, it's super important that you not have your phone on the table and they give some other made up reason. And so what they do is they put people in a situation where their phones are available and people are likely to be constantly looking at them versus unavailable or not. And people enjoy the dinner with their friends so much more when they don't have their phones there. Now, that's not that surprising on the one hand, right? But why, if it's not that surprising, is it so hard for us to go to dinner and not have our phone in our pocket or on the table? And I think the answer to that question is that if you and I are at dinner together, we're friends, we've known each other for 20 years, we're having a good time, it's guaranteed to be a fun dinner. But I kind of know the things you're gonna talk about and you kind of know the things I'm gonna talk about. What comes in on my phone, I could have won the Nobel Prize while we're having dinner. I could have, I could have just had some person 
who wants me to do something that you know wants to buy a painting you know who knows the world there's an infinite number of possibilities on my phone and there's a very finite number of possibilities with you and so even though the reality is that when i'm with you and we're all old mates we're having a good time that's a guaranteed fun i let that be disrupted by the super low probability thing that could be really epic if it were to happen and so people are really entranced by their electronic media because there's infinite possibility there and they have difficulty setting it aside but we know from our ancestral world that it doesn't matter if i have a thousand facebook friends I'm not getting together with those people. They're not actually making me happy on a day-to-day -day basis. What matters now is the exact same thing as what mattered when, you know, a million, not a million, a hundred thousand years ago, which is you and me getting together, probably our families, probably our partners and spouses, all that kind of stuff. Those are the kinds of environments where we naturally have a really good time. And ideally, if we can mix that up with things like dinner, because our ancestors were always struggling to find dinner, and we now live in a world where all dinner involves is either parking or a little cooking. And so we, that part's easy. And so you, if you schedule your life to spend time with good friends and family in meals or in other entertaining context it's a guarantee that's the best recipe for happiness and if you spend your time trying to have more facebook friends or always with your phone and always checking your email it, it there'll be occasional exciting highs when you do win the nobel prize or when somebody does contact you and wants to buy your painting or whatever but usually that stuff doesn't matter and the truth be told you could check that for one hour at the end of your day or one hour at the beginning of your day and set it aside otherwise got it got it so sw switching gears a little bit i i Curious about this idea of, of how there's such a wide spectrum of IQ amongst humans and how we evolve to have such a wide difference, you know, between the lowest IQ and the highest IQ individuals, it's, you know, there, there's such a massive difference and then how that influences populations. Do you have any insight on, into that and how we could, how it sort of evolves? Yeah. So there's, that's, a, that's actually a super hard question and there's lots of argument about it. So it's a great question and I can give you a couple of answers. But sure. whenever you're looking at something really big like that, you can almost guarantee there's no simple solution. It's mm -hmm. never going to be one cause for this massive thing. It's almost always going to be a lot of different causes. So answer one is that um, mutations tend to lead people to be less intelligent. And we gather mutations over time. And so the, if you're lucky that you've got fewer mutations, then you're going to be, um, uh, you're going to be smarter. Because on average, you know, mutations are changes that are unintended. They're duplication errors or or all sorts of other kinds of errors and on average those are going to be a bad thing you can think of them as sort of like i own a ferrari you're my mechanic and you say here i think i can help it let me chuck a couple of loose bolts into the engine probability of a loose bolt in the engine of my ferrari improving the drive is super super slim and so same with mutations on average they're just going to make you worse and because you've got more genetic expression in your brain than you have anywhere else in your body then it's a virtual guarantee that those things are likely to manifest themselves in your head. Sorry, I'm going to be walking for one second while we talk. Sure. Um, the no dog problem. wants to get outside. Um, <laughs> no, not a problem at all. He's got his uh, you know, evolutionary tendencies as well. Exactly. That Strong proclivities and desires. So, <laughs> sorry about that. So, the, um, the, um, so that's part one. Part two is that uh, intelligence is an important predictor of life outcomes but it's far from the only predictor, right? And so you and I probably both know lots of people who are super smart, but they're not a success in life. And why aren't they a success in life? Because they don't have the appropriate underlying social skills. They can't persuade people of their, of their goals. They don't understand other people very well. And so raw IQ matters, but it doesn't matter 
it, it's not the whole story. And again, lots of things that can go wrong with your brain can disrupt your social functioning. And so um, being on the autism spectrum is a perfect example. Lots of things can cause, we believe, lots of things can cause you to end up on the spectrum. And you can be super bright if you're on the spectrum, but you have trouble understanding others. You have trouble putting yourself in other people's shoes. And again, that makes it more difficult to be a success in life. It doesn't mean you can't be, of course. It just makes it more difficult. And finally, the independent of how well you understand others, independent of how well your brain works in general, there's also lots of other factors, like are you just a kind and agreeable person? Um, people like kind and agreeable people. They're, they get ahead in life because we like to be around them. Are you charismatic and fun and interesting? Are people drawn to you? There's a million other things that can make you a success. So by and large, I would say that the things that cause us to be less intelligent are, are bad luck, things like having a high mutation load, the things that cause us to be highly intelligent are good luck. When we look at the, po at, it's called a polygenic score. When you look at the, the genes that underlie things like intelligence. And when you look at the genes that underlie things like intelligence, there's literally thousands. And so it takes a lot of luck to get all those genes to line up in the right direction so that you happen to be a super smart person. And so, you know, it, it's, it's no surprise that these things are gonna vary. Um, in the same way that, that height varies, you know, the, some of us end up really short, like yours truly. Some people are tall and have these massive bodies because they're, again, both gene and environment enable them to go in that direction. So is there a, like, is there a way right now where people can sort of see what their uh, polymorphic, uh, polygenic, yeah. polygenic yeah. score is on different traits? Look, you can, but the problem with the polygenic scores, so this is, the, if you want to read about it, the best place to start is Robert Plowman's new book, Blueprint. And, and Plowman has a great analogy in that book. And he talks, he's, he was one of the first people to be really making headway on trying to understand the genes that underlie our psychology and how much of a role they play. And when he began, he thought, well, environment's going to be hugely important. Genes will be a little bit important and they'll be you know, five or six genes that'll, that'll make you smarter. There'll be six or seven genes that make you extroverted. And he described them as kind of gold nuggets that everybody was looking for. And then he said they came to realize, well, there's no gold nugget there. What they're looking for is gold dust, the tiny effects. And so even though we know, for example, that IQ is about 50% heritable, that's what the twin data show us. We know that we haven't found anywhere near the genes to account for all that. And so the, these polygenic scores, I can't remember the latest data, but they probably are accounting for 5% of your intelligence. And so, yes, you, could, if you, you couldn't do it at, at Ancestry.com or 23andMe because they don't measure enough SNPs. But if you went to a you know, proper genomics lab and, and did up your genome, you could create a polygenic score for yourself. And it would tell you 5% of how smart you are, but you, know, you already know so much more than that score could tell you just by how you've done in school, um, how easily you solve problems and you could take an IQ test for a whole lot less money. Got it. Got it. And is that a field that you're, that, you know, we've been seeing rapid growth in, like, do you think that yeah. will, that will get a lot better or fine tuned over time? It will. It's massively taking off and, and there it's just an issue of power. And so what you need are enormous samples in order to find the genes with reliability that underlie the effects of interest. So A, you need really, really big samples, and we're now getting that because it's getting cheap to sequence genomes. And then B, what you need to start doing is pulling apart, well, what does it mean to ha have the trait of interest? So right now, if I have a polygenic score for IQ, 
a lot of those genes that are in there assuredly have nothing to do with my raw brain power. They have to do with my ability to sit still in school and listen to people teaching me stuff that I'm not inherently interested in. They, my, they, they talk about my ability to control my impulsiveness and study rather than go out and party with my friends. And so there's going to be lots of things in that, in the genome that look like they are predictors of intelligence that are really just predictors of things that tend to go along with intelligence as it's, mo as it's manifested in today's world. But all that's going to get worked out. You build up enough, big enough samples, you have good enough data on people's behavior and their life outcomes, and you're going to start to know the answers to those questions. So really we're on the front end of people knowing a ton about the underlying uh, genomics of all these things. Now keeping in mind, part of it is the genes that are expressed in your body, but we also are now realizing a lot of our psychology seems to be our microbiome. And so that's the genetics of the creatures that live inside us. And if we're lucky and we've got a good microbiome, it, it helps us stay happy. That's what the data seem to suggest. It helps us be not be on the spectrum. That's what the data suggests. And it, it probably plays a big role in things like obesity as well. We know, for example, if you do fecal transplants, from somebody who was obese into somebody thinner, there's a good chance they'll gain weight and vice versa. And wow. so it's telling us that our microbiome is controlling us in a variety of interesting and complicated ways. That's insane. Um, you mentioned there like the, the uh, like learning and studying, and I'm curious if you have any insight on uh, how those traits originally benefited anybody and why would we develop yeah. the trait of learning? Yeah, so the, one of the most amazing things about human beings is our cumulative culture. The fact that every generation doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. So why is it that chimpanzees sit in the forest and break nuts with a rock um, just exactly as their ancestors have done for millions of years? Because they can't build upon the things that they already know. They can't sit around and talk about it and say, well, Bob over there is breaking nuts with a rock and I've been breaking nuts with a rock, but it occurs to me that if I use this, I, ha I attach a handle to the rock, I don't bash my fingers anymore. Now I got a hammer and I made real progress. They can't communicate complicated information like we can. So once we evolve the capacity for language, we evolve the capacity to learn from other people's experiences. So you come back from a hunt and you tell us all about how you nearly got eaten by a lion, but how you escaped. And I'm thinking, holy cow, that's incredibly useful knowledge. It cost you three big chunks out of your leg to get that knowledge, but now you got it and I just got it for free. And so what that did is it caused us to evolve a real love of learning. I want to hear stories because those of our ancestors who love to hear stories, we're going to sit around and learn things for free that otherwise would have had a great cost to go discover on their own. And that's in turn what made our culture so successful, that we could start ratcheting new knowledge on the top of old. And so the, the modern example is every school child today knows the discoveries of Galileo and Copernicus, even though they were the incredible geniuses of their time, because that which is only the purview of a small number of people by virtue of our communicative abilities get spread out and by virtue of our love of learning, everybody starts to get it. And so the original love of learning is really a love of listening to and telling stories. That's what happens every night around the fire in hunter-gatherer communities. Now we've controlled fire for over a million years. And so what that tells you, we've got a million years of evolution of just enjoying sitting around the fire and hearing these BS stories. And lots of them are random, silly foolishness or funny. There's no real meaning, but lots of them tell you, ooh, that's what I'll do when I find myself in that situation. And ooh, that's a good guide for my life. And so we evolved this really strong level of learning because it played such a super important role in our success. You know, look at us, we're tiny and weak and worthless. If you drop one of us alone and naked in the forest, you've just fed the local bear 
or tiger or lion or whatever the animal is in that region. Yeah. You drop a hundred of us alone in the forest, even without a single tool, and you've introduced a new top predator into that region of the woods. And that's because our capacity to work together is extraordinary, and that only works by learning and communication. So, and uh, you know, after learning communication or, or applying those two things is you know into language, and I'm so curious about how languages can be so different in so many different types, but we have the same language centers in our brain. Yeah, that's right. How does that work? How does that happen? How do we, how are we able to communicate in all these different languages? Uh, well, so you, you can think of what they have, we don't know exactly when all this happened, but you can think of the original proto languages as probably being gestural. Even now when we talk, we kind of can't help moving our hands around, right? And so in all probability, here we are, I'll make up a number a million years ago, you and I are homo erectus and we're on a hunt and we've We've actually now got the capacity to plan with the capacity for division of labor, but we can't necessarily talk yet. So I point at you, I point at me, and I do this, and you're like, I'm with you, brother. And, you know, we go around and we kill the beast by attacking it from different sides. And so somewhere along the way, we gain volitional control over our voice box, and we gain the capacity to start making lots of different sounds. As soon as you did that, you could... Probably those gestures had utterances, different kinds of noises that went with them. We know that monkeys have different calls for predators from the sky than from, for predators from the ground. So they're not volitional. It just comes out of them whether they mean to or not. But, but we gain the capacity for volitional control and then for, for greater variety of the sounds we made. And of course, when you think about that, it's so much more than you can do with your hands, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you really learn to sign language. But so once language got going, well, whoever, whatever that original very small group of humans, you know, once they break into different groups, it's just over time a guarantee that they're going to start talking differently. And when I was a kid, you smoked pot and that was really groovy. No, nobody, you know, pot is weed now and nobody uses the term groovy anymore, right? So language mm -hmm. changes and it, it changes, you know, we're now we're talking thousands and thousands of years, it changes in ways that become unrecognizable. And so we all have the exact same language capacity, but we happen to by virtue of splitting off in a million different directions, once language evolved, we happen to do it differently. But there's, there's no basic reason for that. We could have, any one of the, we don't know what the original one looked like, whether it was tonal like Chinese or atonal like English, we don't know any of those things. But of course, one thing that's a guarantee is the original languages were pretty simple and they got increasingly complicated, but all of us have the capacity to do it. And the last thing I want to add to that is, is like, how did it go from, spoken language to written language how did that bridge occur because i was reading something today and just thinking about this you know this interview coming up i'm, I'm like how do we even evolve to read a page you know how did yeah. that even ever happen it's a great question because we, we have no inherent evolutionary ability to read we have no inherent evolutionary ability to write but what happened about five thousand years ago in the middle east when they started building cities for the first time um Uruk is the first major city, that's Eastern Iraq today. And they started trading with each other. And now they want to start trading and they need to um, think, well, all right, I'll give you this today, but you don't have any way to pay me back, so you'll pay me in pigs tomorrow. Let's keep a record of this that we both agree on. I'll draw a picture of a pig and that's what you owe me. And so these very simple origins of, right, of putting something down to indicate what's inside a pot, to indicate what you owe me as a fellow, um, all these kinds of things slowly developed into written language. And so it was originally purely um, in order to have something survive over time that we both agree on. That yes, tomorrow you will give me a pig. 
uh, when I when I come back to this these clay pots in a year from now, I want to know which one has jam in it and which one has figs in it. And so we need to start make, indicating that. And so those very early languages looked like little drawings, but of course they get simpler and simpler over time and they turned into letters. And so all we're really doing is using our super awesome cognitive flexibility to turn our written language into something that's, um, that I'm sorry, a spoken language into something that's written as well. That's only 5,000 years old. And in, in the beginning, it was only used in order to communicate these a few super important things. You, know, you can go back just 100 years ago, and literally 90% of the world was illiterate. They couldn't read. Now, 90% of the world's languages permeated the world, but it, it did so very late in the game, and only once technology was so much better, inherently we don't need it. But it does play a super important role in allowing the ideas of somebody who's a long time ago or a long distance away to be accessible to me. So for our modern world, it's, it's massively important. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm curious about the rise of emojis and how yeah yeah is that like it's a regressive a, thing or a progressive yeah, exactly no it's a regressive thing although we originally it was invented by an engineer because he noticed that people couldn't get sarcasm and jokes over the internet because well it was barely an internet in those days this is the 80s and they would they would type out something that if i said to you you would know i'm kidding you like boy you look stupid today and i got a smile on my face or whatever and you know that we're buddies but over the internet you're like I look stupid today and you'd be upset. And so he said, we need a way to make, to add a smiley face or a frown or something. And so he invented, you know, this little strategy of using the end parentheses and two dots. And, and it was super helpful with electronic communication. And now it's gotten sophisticated and it's taken off. Um, and really in a way, you're absolutely right. It's, it looks like the old written language did from 5,000 years ago. It's fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Well, Bill, this has been, I could ask you questions literally all day long, like nonstop. I'm so curious about all this stuff. I love uh, this whole subject, but um, I know, you know, you're going to get on with your life here. So um, definitely going to recommend everybody to go check out the social leap. Uh, go buy the book. It's phenomenal. Is there anything else? Is there any ask or request you have for the audience? Anything you want to point them to anything you want to suggest for them before we wrap up here? No, I would just say, um, you know, most of the kinds of things we've been discussing are in my book, as you mentioned, in The Social Leap. But the, lots of those other books that I've mentioned in today's conversation, look, they're, they're great books written by um, people who really know what they're talking about. And so if that particular set of ideas interests you, I highly recommend that people take a look at those as well. Fantastic. And where can, are you, are you active online? Is there a place that people can follow you on Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not very good on social media. I do have a Twitter account and I, I do have those things, but I don't do much with them yet. I've been too busy dealing with my just regular academic existence. Um, but by all means, you know, people can Google me and they can find me on Facebook and Twitter and those other places and are, and, and even LinkedIn and are more than welcome to connect through any of those mechanisms. You're scaring me. You're not the evolutionary uh, psychologist is not using social media. Every I know. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. probably a good cue for the rest of us. But um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. This has been awesome. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you.
everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.